Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Been working my way through editing the actual play that we recorded for our Halloween bonus material for our Patreon. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I think it's sounding really good. That's good. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. It's a lot of editing. I think the raw recording time is nine hours or something like that. We recorded for nine hours. That is correct. Yeah. So it's going to be obviously shorter than that once it's edited, but it's still going to be like a big thing that'll drop on our Patreon. So, you know, if you want to get in on listening to this actual play of the Dread RPG, uh, you want to head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and, uh, get a listen on this really cool thing we did. So that's how I am. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Sarah. Good. Can't complain too much. Good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Il Molino delle Donne di Pietra or The Mill of the Stone Women from 1960, directed by Giorgio Ferroni. So is this like a mill of stone women? Like it it mills stone women? Or is this a mill where the stone women live? So best I can tell, there are sculptures of women, presumably made out of stone. Yeah. And the sculptor who makes the women works out of a windmill for some reason? Oh, Okay. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> sounds a lot more like I can see how these pieces got brought together <laughs> than I was anticipating. Well, this is also one of those, but the sculptures are actually his murder victims movies. Sure. You know, they're less stone women than they are like endstoned women, <laughs> I guess. Entombed. Entombed. But we'll find out like more specifics, I suppose, when we watch the movie. This continues kind of the immediate string of Italian horror films Mm -hmm. that exploded in 1960. I think it's really interesting that looking at this, I feel like most people would assume that you had Black Sunday, which is this big deal movie that's still talked about to this very day, and then like an explosion of imitators. But if you look at the timeline, Black Sunday came out like, I want to say August 10th, Adam Age Vampire was like August 16th. This film came out August 30th. So they're not imitators of Black Sunday. Right. And instead, if you want to look at like an Italian horror film of 1960 that came out like early enough for everything else to be imitated, it's actually The Vampire and the Ballerina. Sure. Yeah. Came out like a few months ago. Um, That's fair. I mean, yeah, we've had a couple of other Italian horror movies before that, but all very much inspired by Universal. Yes. And so Vampire and the Ballerina is like this kind of, you know, it was like, oh, let's combine sex and Universal and hammer horror. Right. And then we get this explosion of imitations in August. It just so happens that like Black Sunday 
is the one that is remembered out of all of them, which I think creates this like false narrative that it was the watershed moment. Or maybe it's just because of an announcer going Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> so the big distinguishing feature of Mill of the Stone Women is that it was the first Italian horror film shot in color. Ooh, okay. It was produced by Giampaolo Bigazzi, who had been doing like a lot of um, historical B-movies of the kind that was popular at the time. So like... The Swords and Sandals? Yes. Um, Swords and Sandals, Peplum. Um, these are both names for this kind of like Rome, Greece historical action adventure fantasy kind of genre that was really popular at the time that could kind of range from like being more historical in basis and being like, this is the story of like Caesar fighting the Gauls or something to like very fantastical on another end and being like, this is Hercules fighting the Hydra or whatever. Right. But it was all swords and sandals. The picture's director was Giorgio Ferroni, uh, who had begun his film career doing documentary shorts before directing his first dramatic feature in 1939. Now, Mill of the Stone Women would not be his last horror film, but he would spend the majority of the 1960s doing Swords and Sandals in the first half of the 60s, and then Spaghetti Westerns in the back half, which is basically just means Westerns because Spaghetti Western was a reference to like the Italian Western films that were made during this time that are like set in the United States and are Westerns, but were made in Italy, which is a genre that was basically single-handedly created by Sergio Leone. Right. Um, but there was also this explosion of imitators. Um, that's kind of the way the Italian film industry worked. You had like some top tier directors in each genre doing really like good, innovative work and then for each one of those movies you would get like 30 really cheap cash grab imitators just to clarify i don't think that's unique to italian no because you said like that's like what we're seeing here and i'm we've been seeing that in the u.s we've been saying seeing it in the uk like it's it's particular to commercial film industry very true i think what makes it notable in italy is that in Italy, you still had a film industry at this time that could pump stuff out so quickly that it really felt like an avalanche of product. And that sure. era is sort of ending in the United States right now. Because it requires a studio system? Yeah. Okay. And in the U.S., that kind of quick pump it out stuff. Is, is turning to TV. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The film screenplay is the result of four writers, uh, one of them being the director, though at least this time the editor isn't credited as a writer. <laughs> um, the film's opening credits claim that the story is based on a short story by Peter von Wegen in his book Flemish Tales. Um, oh, I didn't have any research. Should I have been looking this guy up? Yeah, so the thing is, is this claim to literary legitimacy is in fact bogus as there is no such book and there is no such writer okay instead the story's inspiration actually comes from basically a number of horror movies stretching back at least as far as mystery of the wax museum that's like 30 years well yeah like how often have we been seeing this idea of like 
the artist who kills people and hides the corpses in their sculpture, or that's the reason why their sculptures are so realistic or whatever. Like, you know, obviously the big ones are kind of like mystery, the wax museum, house of wax and bucket of blood. But like, we've seen a ton of movies. Yeah. It's uh, a frequent. Well, Mm -hmm. which is really strange to me, considering that I don't think it's a thing that would ever actually work in real life like it's a very outlandish premise i i think for it to work you would need to embalm the bodies first mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i don't know enough about decomposition to be able to say anything if you listener know enough about either art or decomposition get at us at uh, screamscenepodcast at gmail.com so the picture stars pierre bryce a french actor born in 1929 he plays kind of our heroic romantic lead at this point in time bryce was not a very well-known actor his most famous role is ahead of him but from 1962 to 1968 he starred in 11 films as fictional apache chief winnetow in films based on the novels of german author carl may okay so in germany carl may was this author who wrote like a bunch of different novels set in like the american frontier uh one of the main characters is winnetow um to the point where like sometimes the novels get referred to as the winnetow series but there's also this like frontier trapper named old shatterhand and like a bunch of other characters who like reappear and reoccur throughout the stories and these were like super popular novels they um I don't remember exactly when they were written, but I do know that they started doing film adaptations of them as early as the 1920s. Um, So you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Hopefully not first. If that can get written and published, uh, a German writing about the American frontier, making up native characters, don't let your fears about your writing hold you back. Right. Right. Anyone who told you write what you know, no, write what you want to write. Yeah. Um, Do but, the research. Right. But, you know, these, don't don't hold yourself back. These novels were really popular because they spoke to kind of like a European or German fantasy of the frontier and like getting back to nature. They even weren't banned during like Nazi Germany because they reflected this kind of like you know, high escapism. escapism to na- nature kind of idealism. So yeah, these were very popular. So Pierre Bryce played Winnetow in this new version of the films, uh, adapting the novels uh, that were done in the sixties. Those versions of Winnetow were so popular that he reprised the character on stage from 1977 to 1991, because it's this whole thing in Germany where, like in the spirit of like nature and getting into the outdoors, a really popular thing in the summer is to do these Carl May festivals where they do open air play versions of the novels. So like Shakespeare in the park. Right. And he did those for like 20 years. He also reprised Winnetow in a TV series in 1979 and a two part mini series in 1997. Okay. Uh, His popularity playing this character has even been cited as a factor in post-war French-German 
reconciliation <laughs> because like the character is so popular with German audiences. And this was like a French actor playing the character. So it was like, oh, maybe the French are cool after all. Oh my goodness. Okay. But yeah, all of this is in this actor's future at this point. Our female lead is Skila Gabel, uh, who was born Gianfranca Gabelli in 1938. And she actually got her start in the film industry as Sophia Loren's body double. Oh. Before kind of like graduating into roles of her own. Good for um, her. Yeah. So beginning in 1957, she started playing a lot of lead female parts, but they were mostly in genre films like this. A lot of swords and sandals, a lot of historical drama. Um, she never quite busted out of that B-movie level. And so in the late 60s, she actually switched to focusing on acting on stage. And it was there that she started to actually get much more critical appreciation. Our film's villain is played by Wolfgang Preiss, a German actor born in 1910, who got his start acting at Ufa during the war where he was like exempt from military service because he was like acting for like the state run film industry at the time. Okay. Um, so got his start in the 1940s. His most like significant role after the war didn't come until 1955 when he appeared in the West German picture, the plot to assassinate Hitler, where he plays the role of Klaus von Stauffenberg the, you know, famous historical figure who tried to assassinate Hitler and failed. With the um, briefcase, right? Yeah. This generally led Price to be typecast as the level-headed, dutiful German officer in war pictures meant to contrast with, like, the Nazi fanatic officer. Mm, okay. Um, and he played this part so well that he even did it in multiple American war movies like The Longest Day, Is Paris Burning, A Bridge Too Far, and The Boys from Brazil. However, his best known role in his native country uh, was actually playing Dr. Mabusa, um, where he took over the role in Fritz Lang's 1960 sequel, The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa, which like Fritz Lang had made a Dr. Mabusa film in the 20s, and then he had done a sequel in the 30s. Both of those had the same actor playing the character. And then Lang did this third movie all the way over here in the 1960s um, with this new actor. And then that film was so successful that Price actually played Mabusa several more times in various non-Fritz Lang-helmed sequels through the 1960s. Okay. So Mill of the Stone Women was released August 30th, 1960 in Italy, and it actually made 164 million lira at the box office, which means it made more than Black Sunday, which did 139 million lira, or Adam Age Vampire, which did 90 million lira. Probably because it's in color. I would think so. Yeah. A bit more of like a draw because yeah. of that. In contemporary reviews, the film's imagery was praised. Um, I guess people drew a lot of connections between the cinematography and like the work of like Flemish painters and all this kind of other stuff. Um, but criticism was leveled at the slow pace of the film. No, I say no, because like that means they were trying to go for Gothic or something like that and building atmosphere and tension. And either it just didn't work for these people or the movie just doesn't 
pull it off successfully. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, true. Arrow Video released a pretty comprehensive Blu-ray in 2021. Uh, It features the original 96-minute Italian cut with both Italian and English dubbing, the 90-minute French cut, and the 95-minute U.S. cut, which has different English dubbing. Okay. And so I think because of that, Mill of the Stone Women is like pretty weirdly widely available to stream right now. Uh, You can stream it in Italian on Shudder, the Arrow Player, which I actually didn't know until just now that arrow has its own streaming service oh dang um and amc plus you can also rent it in italian on google play youtube and itunes so for like a kind of lesser known italian horror that like i had not heard of before doing the show that like is very much overshadowed by black sunday this movie made more money and is currently for some reason much more widely available than Black Sunday, which has like its various Blu-ray releases and then you can stream it on Canopy and like that's it. I wonder if part of that is the fact that Mill of the Stone Women was kind of a, a co-production across a couple different countries. Um, so it had a bit of a broader sell factor. Possibly. And then also if it's in color, you know, someone who's looking at like, okay, what do I put on my streaming service or what do we want to look at uh, restoring? Oh, mm-hmm. the very first color horror film from italy that makes sense to do for sure and i think the fact that the blu-ray release is so recent probably Mm. also explains like why the streaming rights are so widely available right now very true but it just means that it's going to be very easy for the audience to watch along cool well folks if you do want to watch along check out the places that ben suggested but you'll also be able to find it on our youtube playlist at screamscenepodcast.com You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Il Molino delle Donne di Pietra, directed by Giorgio Ferroni. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Il Mulino delle Donne di Pietra, uh, also known as Mill of the Stone Women, directed by Giorgio Ferroni from 1960. Ben, what did you think of this? So this was actually dope as hell. I uh, really enjoyed this. Yeah. Don't sleep on this movie. It is really good. I think ranking will be interesting because that's always when we compare the movie to other movies and i think there's a lot of different movies to compare this to but the long and short of it is it is a colorful gothic mm-hmm. i think it succeeds in some things and fumbles in others but mm. i think that it's overall a very good watch and as ben said don't sleep on it yeah really good movie yeah uh, let me run through the synopsis and then we can start talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I can tell that you're itching. When we open, we see a man by the name of Hans von Arnhem, uh, who is traveling to Wies, Holland. And this is because he is riding on the 
local mill there where an artist named Professor Gregorius Vall lives and works. The reason why this windmill is of particular interest is because it has been converted from a windmill that mills things into a carousel, basically, of stone figures depicting historical people and or torture that uh, Vol creates. So it's basically like a wax museum, but it's stone and they move in front of you instead of you having to walk. <laughs> yeah, the sculptures are on like a little track and it's powered by the gears of the windmill. Yeah. So on particularly windy days, sometimes the brakes fail and it starts up randomly, uh, much to the annoyance of the local maintenance guy, uh, Conrad. This town is near Hans's hometown, um, and it also happens to be where uh, his girlfriend Lottie and his friend Rob are studying art under Professor Vall. Rob is in love with uh, the model that often poses for them. Her name is Anna Laurie, but her time as a model here is ending because she has been invited to Paris. More on her later. Now, Hans is given a very tight deadline by Vol, who really didn't want him here in the first place, um, because he doesn't really want Hans here, and so kind of secludes him into the windmill. Specifically because, as we learn later, Vol has a daughter who's kept hidden away. This daughter, her name is Elfie, and she has an attendant, this older woman named Salma, and uh, a medical doctor, uh, Dr. Bolum. Now, Elfie sneaks out to meet Hans. If you ever wanted to see someone literally uh, enter boobily into a room, <laughs> that's Elfie. Uh, and so she throws herself at Hans. He goes with it and they fuck. Uh, but he has a lot of guilt about it because he has been with Lottie for years. They are childhood sweethearts. He goes to Lottie and avoids like coming clean, but does ask for forgiveness and says that like, you know, it wasn't until now that I realized that, no, I actually really love you. Let's get married. Yeah. It's like he's asking for like a blanket pardon before like getting married essentially and lottie goes for it like lottie my girl <laughs> my girl and he plans to tell elfie that we've made a very big mistake now before hans can actually go talk to elfie professor vol brings hans over and he's like hey since you've been working here i feel like i should tell you i have this secluded secret daughter named elfie um i seclude her because she's very ill any kind of excitement can kill her. It's kind of how her mom died, uh, though her mom died in childbirth. Um, well, you know, that's that was, exciting. Yeah, it was a particular kind of excitement. Uh, any kind of extreme emotion can threaten her life. So that's why I keep her secluded away. And so I'm asking you to leave her alone. Don't talk to her. If you see her, just kind of leave her be. And yeah, Hans, don't, don't tell her anything upsetting. Yeah. And Hans is like, uh oh, <laughs> she uh, she's been experiencing many emotions. Thanks to me. Um, so Hans goes to meet Elfie and he tells her, you know, it's all over. Um, this was a mistake. And her rage literally kills her. Thinking that she's just fainted, though, Hans carries her to her room and then realizes, nope, she's dead, mainly because he starts to see these bruises that almost look like um, like a kind of decomposition or something on her. 
and he leaves but is overcome with grief and guilt um so he spends like the night walking around and then he returns but when he returns in the morning he's like convinced that they've found her dead in her room um and yet when he enters his room he sees a sign that Elfie has been here uh with a signature rose on his desk he goes to her room she's not there and he's like what is going on he runs into Dr. Bolum, who's like, hey, you look unwell. Let me give you some tranquilizers to calm you down. The next sequence is clearly a dream sequence, um, but the movie likes to play with whether it's real or not. And that's kind of the point, as I'll get to later. But in this dream sequence, uh, Hans sees himself coming clean to Professor Vall about like, I've killed your daughter. I, I fucked your daughter uh i did all these things uh seeing her corpse in the tomb and then being like no wait she is alive wait wait is she dead and um he also sees a woman um who the audience would recognize as anna laurie um but he he's never seen her so he's like who's this redheaded woman wait who's this who's that it's this very like kafka-esque sequence of him like going back and forth to these different rooms and seeing different creepy things that like don't add up and you're not sure like what is him being high on drugs and what is something that's actually happening. And it like, it it's like, it starts out really obviously a dream sequence with like him coming clean to professor Vall and professor Vall being like, well, she's buried in the tomb and blah, blah, blah. But then like he wakes up and Dr. Bolum is there and Bolum's like, hey man what's wrong and it's super weird and so from that point on you think he might be awake but then all the things he's seeing are still really weird and you're like is he hallucinating on the drugs what's going on it's this very like yeah kind of like unclear where the lines of reality are uh sequence that that gets very involved Mm -hmm. as it seems to kind of come to a close like that sequence um Hans runs to Professor Vol's house and sees that Elfie is indeed alive and standing right there. So he basically gets told, you need to rest and you need to not come here ever again because I don't need Elfie getting upset because her illness is real. And clearly this place is having some kind of bad effect on your mental health. Like you're going crazy. You need to go away. When Vol and Bolum are alone... We, we learn a little bit more, namely that uh, Bolum drugged Hans so that he wouldn't know that Elfie was indeed dead and wouldn't know what was real and what was not. Yeah, they gaslit the fuck out of him. The fuck out of him. And notably, we learn that Elfie returns to life through full blood transfusions. Basically, she dies, they take out the bad blood, they pump her full of another lady's blood, and then she lives again. Um, And in this case, the woman that Hans saw tied up was indeed Anna Laurie, uh, who gets killed by a full blood transfusion. Um, To hide the fact that they are killing people, 
Uh, Vol then takes the corpses and through some chemical stuff, turns them to stone. He basically like enhances the rigor mortis while he poses them. Yeah, he and like then, petrifies them. Yeah, and then he's able to kind of use a mix of like the chemicals and some wax and stuff to turn them into stone women in the exhibit. This has been going on for like the last three years this whole process of like Elfie dies they find someone they do the blood transfusion um but Bolum has been trying to find a cure and as luck would have it it turns out that Lottie is a blood match uh using Bolum's magic serum sorry I should be clear it's a scientific serum um Elfie can be cured of this strange illness uh so Hans recovers off screen he comes back he's better Lottie and Rob are all happy together, and then Lottie gets kidnapped. So Hans and Rob head to the mill because they go like, oh, maybe these weren't hallucinations. How would you know who Anna Laurie is without ever having seen her? Um, and they confirm that, yes, Anna Laurie is the latest victim. Meanwhile, Bolum says that his cure comes with a price. Elfie has to marry him. Um, throughout the whole movie, it's been clear that um, Bolum is obsessed with Elfie and Elfie does not want anything to do with him. Uh, so Vol says no way and kills Bolum and begins the procedure to take out the bad blood and pump Lottie's blood in. But only then does he realize that Bolum fell on the serum and Elfie's dead. There's no bringing her back. He takes his daughter in his arms and sets the place aflame. This is like the mill, because uh, we're in the basement of the mill. And he's like inconsolable as he's dragging this dead body around. Meanwhile, our boys come down. They rescue Lottie. They manage to make it out of the mill as Wall and uh, Elfie and the mill go up in flames. No sign of Conrad or Selma. The end. <laughs> the movie ends with like this really great imagery of like, you know, like mystery of the wax museum or house of wax or whatever there's like the imagery of the wax figures burning up and melting but they do this really cool thing where they've put skulls inside them because these are supposed to be real people who got like turned into these figures so as we see like the wax faces burn up and melt it turns into these skulls which is really cool yeah so i think you can tell from like the content of mm. the plot summary it's very gothic and also because it's very gothic there is a lot going on uh i didn't even touch on some of it yeah um because it i just needed to streamline it for sure it takes a while to get going mm -hmm. but like that's gothic for you and i actually really ended up liking the structure of this film it was really slow to start but you kind of need that slow build to establish all the pieces of the story. And what I really liked was that all of the pieces kind of do that gothic thing of like setting up um, intrigue and ooh, who's this person and what are they all about? But the stuff that in maybe like a lesser movie would be just like, oh, that was a red herring. Like that person was looking sinisterly at that other person for no reason but to throw you off. Like do all turn out to be clues and pieces of the puzzle that do fall into place later? Yeah, I think the only threads that don't get brought back up, one of them is lesser than the other. 
the lesser one is Conrad. Mm. He's just a dude who works at the mill. He keeps things running. Um, so hopefully he wasn't around when the mill went up in flames. Um, maybe he was home and this is like his day job and it was nighttime. So he wasn't there. Um, but Selma is the big question mark here. Sure. And it makes me wonder at one point, Val. So every so often you hear like screaming through the house. Yeah. Um, in a very Gothic fashion and Val checks in on Selma to ask if she's doing all right. Uh, she is older. She's probably actually, uh, Val's age as well. So I wonder if something got cut either through the script or the footage itself where Selma is giving blood transfusions to help whenever there is a bit of a, a minor attack of Elfie's symptoms, but the movie doesn't do anything like that. And Selma just kind of disappears. Yeah. She's just kind of played off as like a red herring because she's the typical, like kind of creepy older housekeeper lady. Yeah. But yeah, so we have this like first act that's very slow build, establishing everything, establishing the structure and all these pieces. Um, And then we get the descent into madness of this like extended Kafka-esque what is reality dream drug trip sequence. Which which, I think is the highlight of the movie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely the highlight of the movie. It was so good, so well done. And then after that, I really liked that we kind of got the explanation right away. Yeah. And then moved into like a high energy action climax with then this like perfect gothic horror tragic ending of like this dad holding his dead daughter as he curses out the like wax statues as they burn around him or whatever like this very over-the-top melodramatic ending it's like very well done and I'm super impressed that like the story is as convoluted as it is and yet comes together as well as it does with these different influences coming from like whether it's um, gothic horror or like influences from, you know, like the different wax museum movies we've seen, or like I felt a lot of um, Edgar Allan Poe kind of influences here with the like attempts to drive people crazy, but it all comes together really coherently in a way that was surprising for a movie that has like four or five people listed as the screenwriters. Yeah. I think it is very, interesting and very cool that this movie effectively tells an original gothic story Mm. um which makes me go like is the reason why they brought up like oh this is based off of a novel by this guy as a way to establish audience expectations rather than a claim to legitimacy because the problem with gothic Mm. is if you don't know you're going into it you have people sometimes struggling to care because of that slow buildup. There's genre conventions in Gothic that make a Gothic story easier if you already know what those conventions are, because then you understand when something that's like a weird coincidence, like, hey, Hans has come in from out of town to like interview this dude for like a piece for like the newspaper he works for or whatever. And it just so happens that this dude is the art professor of his childhood sweetheart because their hometown is like a weekend drive away. Like those kind of wild coincidences are just 
part of the story in like a gothic story, right? And if you don't know that you're signing up for a gothic story, a lot of those types of coincidences get hand waved away in bad B movies. Yeah. Um, because the it's like a writer being sloppy or trying to get this draft off before working on their next several projects. So I think that this movie does really well. And I think that it really tries to set those expectations in the opening um, with like the way that the credits are, the way we slowly move into the windmill. I will say the poster has nothing to do with this movie (laughs) and I have problems with the poster, but that's fine um, because if you're trying to set these expectations, you know, what does Um, the poster look like? uh, It has um, Elfie in red in the center. It looks like a decapitated man's head who is maybe also a vampire it has elements that are like, this is just generic horror. Right. Um, not what this movie is actually about. This is really interesting to me. Um, and I don't know if this is just because of what was filmed on a set versus on location. But when we are heading up to the windmill, mm-hmm. and we are literally heading up there, because there is a, a model version mm-hmm. of the windmill, everything is filmed very realistic because it has like the blue light of like either early evening or early morning um it'd be early morning with all that fog that's fair um i mean i don't know what holland's like um and yet when we enter the house or the windmill it's colors galore and it feels very artificial but yet we still like will sometimes cut outside i found it a little jarring when we would cut outside because it would suddenly be so normal and I don't think it's a critique so much as I, I was like curious what you thought if there was something in its visuals that it was trying to tell. So I loved the cinematography in this movie. Um, the location cinematography in the Netherlands is really beautiful. Um, the the fact that they like found this windmill as a real location so that they could go to it and have it be real and the fog all around and the ferry on the river that they found is like really good and they get this really great location cinematography. And then, yeah, we move in to the windmill. And when we're in these interiors, you know, there's shadows uh, with the lighting, but also like colored edge lighting, like greens and reds coming from off camera in a totally like symbolic kind of way. Um, The camera movement is also like totally on point. I really love the way that the camera pushes in on things slowly or moves slowly. And we have some like Dutch angles from time to time. I mean, they're um, all Dutch, Ben. We're set in Holland. That's fair. That's really fair. <laughs> it's it's wild to me that no one on the crew is a horror veteran, that these are all like swords and sandals people, because the movie is honestly made with such a confident eye towards what's unnerving. It's like the cinematic equivalent of like a well-told ghost story. Yeah. Um, as to this like reality, unreality break in the style that you're identifying so we've talked a lot about how on a narrative level this is gothic on a cinematic genre level this is expressionism yeah this is expressionist as hell this could have starred conrad veit and Werner krauss in the top roles yeah to that point bolum looks sometimes like bella lugosi oh absolutely and Vol sometimes, sometimes looks like um, a very old uh, Paul Wegner 
Sure. Uh, yeah, I was thinking Werner Krauss, but he's got that like big eyebrows thing, right? And speaking of that, like the plot is not actually what I was expecting at all. Like you yeah. talked about how this is telling an original story and that's so true because we've seen so many of these movies that are like the artist murderer who turns his victims into the sculptures um, in so many different films. And this is completely different. This is like a completely different take on that. It is not the same story as all those other versions. It's like, it's just a way to get rid of the corpses and to hide what they're doing. The motivation is his daughter, mm-hmm. which we've seen a little bit of some stuff like that. Um, like, uh, what was it called? The disappearing corpses or something like that, where like Bela Lugosi as his wife who wants oh, to be Oh, the corpse beautiful. vanishes. Yeah. Um, but it, it hasn't been as sympathetic as this. This felt almost akin to like a Mr. Freeze. Yeah, very much so. And also just like the uniqueness of, um, so we actually haven't mentioned this, but to be clear, this movie set like turn of the century Victorian times. Yeah. Good job. Thank um, you. So like the, the twist when it's midway through and it's like, oh yeah, not only did Elfie die when Hans thought she did, Elfie's been dying for three years and like dies and we bring her back to life over and over. And she's like this weird zombie woman that we just pump fresh blood into every time she dies because like her blood can't maintain its own cells or whatever the explanation ends up being. Um, It's, it's this huge twist because I feel like the time period Mm. doesn't make you think like, doesn't make you think that, oh, we're going to do some like science things, right? It's like, it's, it's like nothing it's, with glands. It's nothing like. It's like it's not modern enough for you to expect a mad scientist, but it's not far back enough in the past for you to expect magic. Yeah. Um. So it comes out as this big surprise. They also, I think, do a really good twist where I thought Dr. Bolum was the villain. Like mm-hmm. I went through most of the first two acts of the movie thinking Vol was just like, I'm the dad, you know, in the story. Uh, ha ha ha. Like I'm the avuncular figure or whatever. And Bolum was like the crazy evil mad scientist person who has the dangerous obsession with the daughter and so on. And then like Bolum actually turns out to be more what you think Conrad is going to be. Like you think Conrad is going to be the assistant who turns on the villain at the end, but that's actually Bolum. Yeah. And like, yeah, Bolum's like, I spent three years rescuing your daughter's life. I want to marry her thing is like, okay, that's like, that's like a little gross for sure. But like, it's not villain territory. Like Bolum's like, doesn't really like the fact that, um, Vol turns the girls into sculptures. He finds that super weird and icky. Like he makes it clear that like, I'm in this to try and save your daughter's life. Right. And, um, yeah. So this ends up being like so much more and so much better than just another, wax museum ripoff because it's telling this original story right i want to give a shout out to the costumes the costumes are great yeah um you mentioned this already but like the uh shadow and use of color and key lights and stuff like that were great i think the acting is pretty good especially um the dude who played hans pierre bryce yeah he was really good yeah well, that's why i mean i compared it to like conrad veit and Werner Krauss because mm. like bryce gives a very conrad veit like performance in his like descent into madness sequence of the movie like it's very and the way he gets gaslit really reminded me of like hands of orlac that being said pierre bryce what he looks like to me is like very young alec baldwin 
Um, <laughs> but I could see that. He's I, like very classically handsome. Very yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to the point where he's almost like boringly handsome. <laughs> like it's like square jawed, blue eyes, black hair. Anyways, <laughs> he is very good though. And I also think that like um, the actor who plays Bolum and the actor who plays Vol, who are both German actors, understood the assignment basically. 100%. Like they are absolutely like, you know, I think the people who made this movie must have seen the old German expressionist horrors of the twenties. Well, if those two are German, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes total sense. And like, especially given their age. Yeah. Like, so to me, it like, it just feels like they must've intentionally known they were riffing off of this. And I think that the filmmakers, the Italian filmmakers even like must've known this is kind of what they were doing. And I don't know, maybe it's the fact that like the actor who played Bolum this same year played Dr. Mabusa in like a sequel to these old 1920s, 30s kind of expressionist crime movies. Yeah, so maybe while he was prepping for that, he became inspired for how that could influence this role. Yeah, there's like this connection here of like bringing that forward. And it's so interesting because, you know, while we did remark at the time about how expressionism morphed into film noir as the Germans came over to the U.S., and so it's not like expressionism went away it like developed into other things but we're now enough decades out that we're starting to see direct inspiration coming from expressionism because all these other things kind of evolved out of expressionism but it wasn't like this throwback thing of trying to directly go back and ape like a particular style and this is the first time i can really think of where we're seeing something like that where it's like I guess if you think of the time period, like the the time between um, someone who was, let's say, 10 mm-hmm. seeing um, Nosferatu 30 to 40 years later now is someone who can like pull their weight in the film industry and be yeah. like, hey, now we're going to do this kind of artistic style. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's basically like stylistically, this is expressionism in hammer color. Yes, it's very explicitly hammer color. Yeah, like that's the style they're going for with the color stuff, but they are using it with this like expressionist lens. And so coming back to the point about like how it's shot very realistically outside of the windmill, like for those listeners who maybe aren't familiar with German expressionism and maybe like haven't been with us for 300 episodes. That's fair. Um the key element of expressionism as an art form, whether it's because uh, it's a visual style that is not synonymous with horror. You can yeah. have like expressionism in different narrative genres because it's a visual genre. But the key element of expressionism is the idea that like the internal psychology of the people, of the characters becomes externalized in their environment, um, becomes an expression of their inner character. And so the windmill is depicted as this kind of maze-like labyrinthine unreal place because it's where all of this crazy stuff is happening basically yeah yeah i i really enjoyed this movie and um i think i want to call back to something you said in the first half Mm. about the ties of these more recent italian movies 
being more influenced by the vampire and the ballerina rather mm. than Black Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, like you gave dates and it makes total sense. But this movie has so many plot beat parallels to the vampire and the ballerina. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's clearly them go- like using that as a blueprint for basing this gothic expressionist story on. And while you can also see like the very clear influence of the hammer horror films um, and even stuff going back to like, like Vampire, I felt had some influence on this as well. Yes. Um, Or like Fairman Maria or things like that. The other key thing that I think here, thinking about this movie, thinking about Adam Age Vampire, thinking about Black Sunday and thinking about these three films together and their place in 1960 and when they came about, I also think we're seeing how the European horror film world reacted to Eyes Without a Face. Yes, because, I like, think that's where you see a bit of that daughter relationship mm-hmm. in here. And like the whole thing of like, I have this daughter who has some horrible secret and I need to like keep her going. And the way I keep her going is by killing these other people and that kind of gothic thing the daughter being in on it too Mm -hmm. um in both eyes without without a face and stone women the daughters know what's going on they are more than complicit Mm -hmm. they're accomplices yeah and you know we have obviously the parallels in adam age vampire and eyes without a face with like the facial reconstruction stuff Mm -hmm. and all of that and even um Black Sunday, ultimately, while it is different, it's still this, like, gothic story that has this, like, beautiful, mysterious daughter figure as, like, kind of the central source of mystery and this storyline of, like, women having to die to keep another woman going and and specifically keep another woman beautiful, which is, like, a key part of all of these it's not explicit in mill of the stone women it's just that elfie is young and played by you know sophia loren's body double um yeah she is beautiful she is very hot in like that very specific like early 1960s italian woman kind of aesthetic absolutely did you notice her hair was similar to what's her face in black sunday yeah. That bad wig. I think it's I think it's like that was the in style for Italian women yes. at the time, right? Yeah. I yeah. just wanted to call that out because I know uh, that actress really didn't like that the wig. wig. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, like what you're left with here is a lot of, you know, sexy nightmare imagery, basically. And I think people like Black Sunday more because, and I think it like, stands out more to people because it pushed the like gore shock elements of horror more than this. Whereas this is much more of like a throwback because it's like, you know, Gothic expressionism hammer style. Um, So it doesn't have that like forward pushing thing, but I think in some ways, like on a narrative craft level, this might be better than black Sunday. Is this the transition into ranking? Perhaps. Do we want to do that? If you're ready, if you if there's nothing else you wanted to hit on. Well, I think this is a good point for me to hit on what I would want to speak to um, as we move into ranking. I really enjoyed this movie. 
but I do see why people had problems with the pacing because it does take like act one takes its time Mm -hmm. and I understand why I think they could have made it just a hint tighter but especially for someone who's not going in with the expectation of something gothic and expressionist people are going to be like I don't know what's happening why do I care enough to give the benefit of a doubt sure in Black Sunday we talked about how it understands pacing it understands the control of the camera for the cinematography and how that impacted the feeling of the pacing, mm-hmm. um, how what was going on was clear despite the plot challenges that it had. And it had many. Yes. Stone Women does not feel like it had plot challenges. Um, and yet it, it takes its time just a little bit too much. Mm. So for me, I see what you're saying about like pushing forward and stuff, but Black Sunday tells a more cohesive controlled story stone women fantastic but it's not as good in that way i think i think i would agree that black sunday's story is better on a cinematic level i think stone women's story is better on a narrative level because all the pieces fit together a lot more cleanly you're not sitting there being like well wait is she a witch is she a vampire is she (laughs) like what what exactly is going on here um that's fair because this really felt i I said this already but it really felt like a gothic story it felt like an adaptation of a gothic novella yeah yeah like this could have been like northanger abbey like even the title you know like for sure and yeah like all those pieces kind of come together in a very satisfying way you know even the weird drug trip dream sequence you know it's like they find the wax figure of Elfie later that like was in the tomb that he thought was dead her. And like, you know, it's just like things feel very coherent in that way, but it, you know, it takes a while to grab you. I think the movie's probably hoping that the babes in the cast are hot enough to like keep you (laughs) interested long enough for the story to kick into gear. Like that's fair. So speaking of black Sunday or, as it might be more properly known, um, La Mascara del Demonio, or The Mask of Satan, uh, we've got that ranked at number 20. Um, and I ended up with like a super huge range mm-hmm. uh, looking at this movie because, like I said, I thought maybe this was better than La Mascara del Demonio. So I made that kind of my ceiling because I don't think it's a better horror movie than Isle of the Dead which is mm-hmm. at 19, um, which I think has like such a masterful control of atmosphere and tension. But, you know, I could still see someone saying that Black Sunday is better like you did. Um, so I was like, OK, well, what is this definitely better than? Right. And I started to work down, you know, and we have stuff like La Diabolique at 24 that has a very similar like gaslighting plot line. We have stuff like uh you know the classic german expressionism films like cabinet of dr caligari's at 42 um i even looked at like you know hammer horror starts with at least the color version of hammer horror starts with curse of frankenstein that's at 48 um but then vampires down at 57 and we have stuff like white reindeer at 60 and then Eyes Without a Face is actually all the way down at 61, because while we acknowledge that it's like super, super influential, it's a little tame 
as a horror movie, quite frankly. Um, a little too, like, artsy, basically. Yeah. Um, but below Eyes Without a Face is The Screaming Skull, and then there's, like, Flesh and the Fiends, Brides of Dracula, Ballerina and the Vampire, etc. So I made 62, The Screaming Skull, my floor. I felt this is definitely better than Screaming Skull. But that leaves me with, like, a 42 film range from, like, 20 to 62. So that's, like, a huge swath. So can you help me, no. Sarah? Oh, no, no, I can't. Um, I also was like, hey, Black Sunday ceiling. And looking for my floor, I actually looked for where Vampire and the Ballerina, Lamonte del Vampiro, mm-hmm. is. Because, like I said, that movie becomes a bit of a blueprint for stone women. Um, but it's definitely better. That is ranked at number 65. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, it's going to be in here. Um, where I tried to narrow things down. Mm-hmm. It's tough because this area, really, really good. Yeah. Really good movies. I wanted to call out Screaming Skull at 62 as a really good place marker because that movie tries to be gothic and mysterious, but on a super low budget. And it does have a really awesome gimmick. Uh, I love that the skull actually comes at you and screams, but I do think Stone Women is better than Screaming Skull. Yeah. But below Screaming Skull are like... The Brides of Dracula. Stone Women feels like such a better follow-up to the legacy of Hammer than Brides of Dracula. Oh, totally. So, yeah, that's it's it's kind of a mix in here. So, I think, you know, we have to then say, okay, like, is this better than Eyes Without a Face, which we've identified as being this, like, blueprint model for a lot of these other movies i think to answer that you have to figure out how you feel about something being more realistic versus being more visually expressionist i think the other thing is we have to come back to a point that we sometimes have to raise on this podcast which is that it's a ranking list of horror movies yeah and so like if i was in a like film studies class and I was having to present like an argument about which of these two is the better film. I think Les Yeux Sans Visage, Eyes Without a Face, much better film than Mill of the Stone Women. Like Eyes Without a Face, you can put it in a museum somewhere and be proud of it. Beautiful film. As a horror picture, I think Mill of the Stone Women is much better because... Eyes Without a Face kind of leaves you being like, so, wasn't that kind of creepy? Yeah. And the bit where her mask was off for a moment, like, that was that was a little startling, huh? Whereas, like, Mill of the Stone Women, like, knows how to unnerve you and scare you. Even, like, the first time we see Elfie, where she's just, like, behind a curtain that she pulls back in the weirdest way possible and then has this bizarre pained expression on her face and then kind of vanishes, like... That right away is like really weird and unnerving, right? I think Mill of the Stone Woman is trying to scare you and maybe the pacing means that it, you know, kind of loses that tension that it builds up from time to time. But I think as a horror movie, it's better than Eyes Without a Face. But like as films, as cinema, <laughs> Eyes Without a Face is, is superior for sure. But you get what I'm saying? Yes. Um. Okay. How... Do you feel about comparing stone women 
to some of these original German Expressionist movies. Cabinet of Caligari is at 42, and Nosferatu is at 43. You know, it's really difficult. I feel like this movie owes so much to Caligari, not just the sort of archetypes. Like, even the, like, main character and his best friend who have to solve the mystery thing feels like Caligari, right? And, um, like, the kidnapped girlfriend and stuff. But, like, yeah, man, like... um, Professor Vol and his eyebrows here just like feel like they walked right out of a German expressionist film. Um, and the whole like doubting reality thing and how much of the movie was real and how much was imagined. And, you know, that's very Caligari. Um, the movie owes so much to Caligari. Yeah. So the question becomes, is it doing that stuff better than Caligari did? I don't know about Caligari, but I know with Nosferatu... Nosferatu kicks it out of the park. Mm. Stone Women is bringing that style into the color age mm-hmm. and kicking ass while doing it. But it's like an update rather than a revolutionization. For sure. Which is like kind of what I was trying to say about it versus Black Sunday, right? Yeah. So I think for me, I would have to put this below Nosferatu. So below 43. Okay. I really like A Page of Madness. Um, I know you do, yeah. But I think Mill of the Stone Women is the better horror movie because the thing about Page of Madness is you kind of need like a map to that movie. <laughs> like yeah. you need a guidebook. Like whereas Mill of the Stone Women hits you much more on a visceral level. You can sit anyone down in front of Mill of the Stone Women. You know, put on the English dubbed version. I'm sure it's fine. Like, and they'll watch it, right? Whereas, like, A Page of Madness needs, like, a page of notes to <laughs> accompany it, right? Yeah. No, I'm I'm happy with this. Okay, so entering the list at the new number 44, then, is Il Molino delle Donne di Pietra from 1960, directed by Giorgio Ferroni. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, or you can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app that you listen to the show on. That helps push the show to new listeners. If you don't want to depend on the algorithm to push the show to new listeners, you can push it on people yourself by (laughs) going to social media or talking to people, you know, in meat space, word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. Um, for a second, when you said meet space, I was like, do you mean MySpace? <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? Um, get us on MySpace, folks. Um, if you really enjoy what we do here and want to help support us uh, financially, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five and ten dollar level get access to regular bonus content, and October is always when we go for broke 
on bonus content. Uh, the weekly bonus audio has been from our horror adjacent series of films. So lots of really fun bonus audio uh, coming out every week. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, we've got an actual play of the TTRPG Dread that we're going to be releasing as a special episode just for our patrons. So if you want to check that out, and I highly recommend you do, it's a gothic horror story set at an all-girls boarding school with a lot of um, homages and inspiration from various places that I think people will really enjoy. So head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, sign up and become a patron to get access to all that cool stuff. So Ben... What are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, is going to be the episode that comes out nearest to Halloween. Yeah. Um, It'll be the day after Halloween. Right. We are watching City of the Dead. There's a British horror film in black and white starring Christopher Lee. Nice. So we'll be leaving Italy. Uh, enjoyed the food. Enjoyed the films. Fantastic Italy. place. Italy's wonderful. Uh off to the UK. Yes. For Mr. Lee. That's right. So Christopher Lee for Halloween. I'm okay with that. We will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.